Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome into another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest, Brigadier General John Widener, who is the departing Deputy J-5 for plans at U.S. Strategic Command because he's going to assume the position of Chief of Staff of U.S. Forces Korea. He is, of course, an Army F-A-52 which, for those of you that might not know, that is the Army's best and brightest. And they are, of course, you know, the Army's nuclear officers, so they're really good at math and physics. Uh, So for those of you that didn't know the Army was into that, the Army's into lots of things, lots of medical, lots of science. They do all sorts of stuff. So with that, John, thanks for coming on NucleCast. Well, thank you, Adam. It's a great honor to be here and uh, and a privilege. You've had uh, some phenomenal guests, and for me to be uh, part of that lineage is uh, just unbelievable. So appreciate you taking the time and uh, for uh, your whole organization and everything that you're doing to support uh, nuclear and strategic deterrence in this area of renewed great power competition and strategic competition. Now, you and I have had some interesting conversations uh, in the building over the last you know, year or so. And, uh, when we were, when you were the Usanka commander and I would paid you a visit, it was, it was always good to chat because many people don't realize that the army and, and it's 52 community think quite a bit about nuclear use because by and large, it particularly in the environment we're in today, where we're thinking about the use of low yield, non-strategic nuclear weapons for the U.S. Army, that is something that they have to think about because they would be, by and large, the maneuver force that would look into, you know, this threat and say, how do we maneuver around or prevent or deter this kind of nuclear weapons use? So it's it's directly applicable to what you've done in throughout your career and, you know, whenever, you know, this was an, a topic that was a few years ago when I was with the Army, it was a it was a big topic of growing concern. General Garricky sort of tried to bring it to the forefront of of discussion because of the things that the Russians are doing and have been doing over the last, you know, eight to 10 years. And so having just finished tour at STRATCOM how has your view of deterrence changed from being, you know, sort of a Army 52 focused on Army problems to having moved to a joint assignment where you're looking at strategy across, you know, strategic deterrence writ large? How did that change your thinking about the topic? Yeah, excellent question. And uh, you started off talking about the Army 52s, and I was proud to uh, have been a 52 for more than 
last two decades, more than that, of my career. And uh, there, at any given time right now, there's about 325 in the Army, uh, officers in the grades of captains through colonel. And uh, as you noted, we're, we try to be the Army's experts for nuclear weapons effects, nuclear policy, nuclear arms treaties, countering weapon of mass destruction and uh, deterrence and so forth. And a couple of observations I think that may feed into your question is, one, I think Army officers particularly, including senior leaders, but this is common across the other services as well, overestimate, dramatically overestimate the effects of nuclear weapons and even what we tend to call low yield nuclear weapons. And I think what that then generates is an underestimation of the likelihood of an adversary's use of nuclear weapons. Now, oftentimes I ask, hey, if there was a 10 kiloton nuclear detonation at some random elevation over some place and you're five miles away, what happens to you? And, and, the, and the descriptions are pretty dramatic. Sure. And I, th I think that's caused the Army to think that, well, we really don't have a major role in theater use by an adversary of nuclear weapons because we really vision ICBMs or submarine-launched ballistic missiles going over our heads. And now the Army, I think, is realizing with the constant nuclear coercion that we hear from Russia in following their invasion of Ukraine, that uh, the Army is going to be disproportionately affected by any nuclear use in theater because of its theater responsibilities that it has that no other service has, and because it's the ground force, and that's where almost everything that we are trying to uh, achieve or counter is occurring is on the ground. So we do have a significant role, but now being at STRATCOM, I've had to evolve that a little bit, although prior assignments working in the National Security Council and at uh, NNSA uh, exposed me to some of these issues. But certainly now it's bringing together um, the forces with nuclear weapons, but also other strategic capabilities such as space and cyber. We're now developing hypersonic weapons, as you and many are very familiar with. And there's a ripe discussion to be had about how we can use hypersonic weapons at the various levels of war, including at the strategic level, to support strategic deterrence, electromagnetic spectrum considerations, undersea operations, and all kinds of things. And so the adversaries are evolving their uh, approach to countering the United States based on their observations of us over the last 30 years. And we need to do the same and we need to continue to innovate because I believe they are investing significant uh, treasure into improving nuclear forces. That's Russia. That's certainly China with their vast explosion of capabilities that most uh, are familiar with and now North Korea. And so I don't think they're doing that just for bluster. And we have to be prepared for their use in theater. Yeah, it's it's funny that, you know, you mentioned the misperceptions that people often have about what it means for, like you said, a 10 kiloton nuclear use. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I held that same view until, uh, I don't know, maybe three years ago, probably I was going through TNOC. I had gone through it maybe a decade ago and then forgot. And I was like, you know, I need to go through it again. And I was sitting in TNOC and we were, you know, running the calculations. We we're, you know, using the, the software that, that Ditra has. And 
And as I'm sitting there looking at the distances, you know, what are the minimum safe distances for troops protected, for troops unprotected? And I thought, man, you can actually get really close to a nuclear weapon and to a detonation and be okay. And that was sort of when the light bulb went off for me. So maybe we need a lot more people, you know, going through TNOC, Theater Nuclear Operations course. And then if they can see because yeah, the weapons effects and even some of the stuff that like uh, there's a guy, Alex Wellerstein, who has a thing called Nuke Map, which, uh, you know, by my estimates, as I run calculations and then compare them, his his stuff is about 40 percent greater uh, damage assessment than than our own software tells us. So I'm not sure how accurate it is. But it, it, you know, it's this idea that we can sort of figure out based on VNTKs and based on wind and weather patterns and mountains exactly how much damage and that we and the Russians and the Chinese can tailor those effects. I don't think too many Americans and even those within the service, you know, understand that, yeah, this is all possible. And, and that's what people do like you. Yeah, that and what I always try to reinforce with senior leaders is the adversary understands how to employ their nuclear weapons to achieve the effect that they want to get just as we do. And that shouldn't be a surprise for a technology that's been around uh, since world war II. and all of the tests that we and the Russians have done and uh, the Chinese have done nuclear tests and, and others as well. And so the science is fairly straightforward, although predicting some effects is challenging. Fires, for example, and output of a nuclear explosion is uh, thermal effects, and that can be challenging to try to predict fires, particularly in an urban area and so forth. But um, they are, uh, the bottom line is the adversary understands that they can be used to achieve uh, certain effects, and they can tailor either the yields based on the diversity of weapon. Russia, of course, has, Russia has this very diverse uh, stockpile of non-treaty accountable nuclear weapons, which, by the way, include very high-yield ones. This un autonomous underwater torpedo designed to create a nuclear tsunami is reported and impressed to be megaton class. And many people, I think, uh, have an understanding on nuclear weapons that if it's not under the New Star Treaty, it's really just a tactical for mm -hmm. use in, in right. theater. And uh, that's an example of one that certainly isn't what I would call tactical. It's meant to by Russia's own accounts to seemingly create a, as I said, a radioactive tsunami to deny access to a large area of terrain. So, uh, yeah, a lot of misunderstandings about nuclear weapons, their effects, what's, uh, what the treaties uh, allowed or didn't allow and so forth. And I think we as, a, as leaders across the military, our civilian leadership, and I think even our society has to have a little better understanding of that in a way that I believe we did in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. And now that you're, you know, vacating the chair at Stratcom, as you've thought about how to handle the strategic environment that we're in, you know, a belligerent Russia, a rising China that is no longer sort of, you know, their uh, Deng Xiaoping's, you know, very famous admonition to you know, hide your strength and bide your time, you know, that, that period is over. It is now, you know, a pursuit of parity. The North Koreans, uh, you're going to USFK. Kim Jong-un has said he wants, 
you know, to achieve parity and he wants a, a arsenal that is large enough that we cannot take it out if we so sought to. And he's looking at tactical, strategic. He's building a pretty strong arsenal. You know, it's it's a pretty the Iranians may or may not go nuclear. So it's becoming a increasingly dangerous world that is. You know, we keep saying near peers, but Russia is actually, you know, they're an a- absolutely a peer, if not, you know, a superior uh, adversary. And then, the, you know, the Chinese are building, the, the South or North Koreans are building. So as you've sat in the chair and thought about this and then tried to plan for it, sort of what are your thoughts and takeaways on, you know, how we have to handle the world we're in now? Yeah, excellent question. And uh, the first thing I'd say is that by observation, our allies are on the front lines of this nuclear coercion that we're seeing, not only from Russia, but from China and from North Korea. And I think that level of rhetoric, irresponsible nuclear threats that include videos sometimes. I My readings on the heights of the Cold War in late 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, that kind of threat was not commonplace like it is now. It's almost, uh, and, and it demonstrates that it's going to be a tool reached for early and often in any competition or conflict with uh, those, those uh, nuclear competitors, Russia, China, North Korea. So our allies are the prize. And you can see how Russia is trying to uh, subsume Ukraine. China is certainly threatening those on its periphery, uh, Taiwan. Uh, the Taiwan situation is going to be a challenge here, uh, I think, in many of our life, most people's lifetimes. Uh, but there's also threats uh, and significant pressure on other uh, allies and partners and nations in the region, Vietnam, uh, certainly Japan, and all they experience around uh, the southern tip of their country. South Korea is getting a lots of pressure, of course, from North Korea and so forth. And so it's our it's what gives us as an alliance such great strength as we now have NATO allies stretching from Finland now. And Finland welcomed to NATO. What a great opportunity that was. Stretching all the way to treaty allies in Australia. That's a pretty dramatic stretch of opportunity access and support that we gain. And if and we have to defend our allies, and of course we offer extended deterrence guarantees to uh, our treaty allies. And I would argue that the, our extended deterrence guarantees have done as much, if not perhaps more than uh, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to stem the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so our assurance of our allies, of our uh, ironclad commitment to our extended deterrence guarantees is going to be monumental to defend and hold that network together because it gives us such an advantage. You know, if you think of the allies that Russia, China, and North Korea have, I think you can count for those three countries, all of their allies in less than one hand, right? Yeah. And so we have to appreciate what those uh, allies bring and, and and hold that together. And then, of course, uh, the second part is deterrence, and uh, our national defense strategy is founded on the idea of deterrence, by the way. I think many people um, aren't struck like I am 
that we now have a national defense strategy founded on deterrence. That's unique. We haven't had that for a while, a long while. And so under bringing together, and the idea of integrated deterrence is not new. The idea of bringing together a lot of capabilities has been around for a long time. When I first came into the Army in the early 90s, it was airland battle had come through in the 80s and so forth. But this idea of bringing together all of the domains and all of the capabilities, and by the way, that includes allies, to the fight, I think is exactly the right way to go because it's the most effective, which should lead to the achieving of objectives, to, to the most effective deterrence. And then if necessary, if deterrence fails to achieving objectives at the lowest level of violence and damage possible because you bring together such uh, immense capability. Well, we're at that point of the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Brigadier General John Widener, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're talking to Brigadier General John Widener, the departing Deputy J-5 for plans, who's going to USFK to take over as the chief of staff there. So he's got a, a big task ahead of him. So after your time at Stratcom, I was, you know, I was thinking about, you know, you know, I like to write and I like to write provocative articles. And so I was trying to think what would be sort of a good provocative article to write. And I... It, and it struck me that, you know, Stratcom needs a name change. And the argument is that U.S. Stratcom, U.S. Strategic Command, is no longer U.S. Strategic Command. It's U.S. Nuclear Command with the loss of CWMD and cyber and space that, you know, Stratcom is almost, almost exclusively focused on nuclear and that and sort of the premise of the article would be that now that Stratcom doesn't have the capability to think about all these things, you know, cause everybody wanted to separate them. And, you know, I was part of that group that said, you know, cyber belongs elsewhere and space belongs elsewhere. But now you, you think to yourself, well, well, who pulls it all together? And I'm not, I'm not sure I could say who really pulls it all together. The joint staff, maybe who's, you know, who is out there, uh, pulling it all together and, you know, sort of what is your take on, you know, you know, this disaggregation of these strategic capabilities and the role and place of Stratcom today? Yeah. But another uh, phenomenal question, not surprising from, uh, yeah, Adam. And uh, I would argue that that's a, that's been a common, I think, um, question or observation by many leaders now that in this, era of strategic competition with three 
often referred to as near peers, Russia, China, and the United States who dominate the global security environment, that the idea and the way that our Department of Defense has operated over the last several decades, whether that be in Iraq or Afghanistan or in Somalia or in Kosovo, we kind of we drew a line around the region and called that the Joint Operations Area, and we appointed a single commander uh, in charge of all of the forces, and we were never at risk of being out-escalated in level of violence by an adversary, and that's how we fought all those conflicts. That just is not going to work now, and I think we need to think we need to think very hard as a nation about how we are going to approach conflict with a nuclear armed adversary that can extend to any level of violence they want, including large nuclear exchange. At a moment of their choosing, we can't control or prevent that um, anywhere on the globe. And they can use other significant instruments of national power. Information, the information domain is very significant and powerful. Uh, Economic domain, certainly China has lots of economic capability to leverage. So we have to, I think, as a not just a Department of Defense, but as a nation, our nation did a phenomenal job in undercutting much of Russia's early false flag approach approaches to the Ukraine invasion. And that was a dramatic example, a very powerful, successful example of how the State Department and intelligence and defense and others use the information domain and others. So... That's one observation is we do need, and I'm not sure if how, you know, depart, our department is organized kind of regionally with ge- with what were formerly known as geographic combat commands and or were formerly known as functional combat commands. And uh, we also have offices within OSD and joint staff. We need to have a more holistic global approach if we're going to confront a global adversary. In addition, um, you had mentioned about uh, changing the name of STRATCOM. I would argue that, and I t- tend to point out to people that we're not called Nuclear Command, we're called Strategic Command for a reason. <clears throat> and some of our missions are non-nuclear, um, but we're most known for commanding and controlling all nuclear forces. <clears throat> but we also have, for example, Global Strike. That's really a conventional mission using uh, our, the conventional side of the bomber force, including the B-1s. Uh, which are retained by the Air Force, or our B-52s and, and, and any bomber capability necessary to, to strike anywhere on the globe. We are the lead for strategic deterrence planning. And that's uh, because I, I would argue STRATCOM is one of, if not the leading combat command in thinking about strategic deterrence including nuclear deterrence. Nuclear deterrence will always have to be the bedrock of strategic deterrence because it deters in a way that, to date, no other capability uh, can because I think the fear of nuclear explosions is so real for so many of our adversaries. And so I would argue that uh, we are more than nuclear deterrence. We have a fairly limited stockpile that is the size of the early, the one we had in the early 1950s, as you well appreciate. And our infrastructure is very limited in its ability to grow that if we were to decide that. And we certainly do have to modernize that. And I'd love to talk about that if you're, if you're so interested as well in our modernization efforts. But it can't be the only thing 
And so uh, I think strategic command is the actually the right name to recognize that it's strategic deterrence in the end. Now, you, you mentioned modernization, and I sort of have, I'm sort of torn about modernization and, and where we're going. I certainly believe we, we need to modernize if the, the Sentinel, for example, will be a fantastic missile that has capabilities that Minuteman 3 does not have. You know, the B-21 is going to be great. Um, the, you know, the new submarine will be awesome as well. Columbia is going to be great. So these are all needed capabilities. But here's the question for you in a discussion about modernization. I would submit that too often we look at modernization as at building a, a new version of a same capability. And we're not actually thinking about different capabilities. And, and nuclear, because nuclear has almost this, you know, just the discussion of it, it's almost like it's, you know, on either side of the aisle of this, it, it has takes on sort of a religious tenet. You know, there's it, it's, you know, nuclear weapons are one of the few weapons that are Im, immuted to have, you know, some sort of morality to them or lack of morality. And so it's hard to have a really good sort of open discussion and debate about what our nuclear arsenal should actually look like. And, you know, we've had in one episode, we had Zach Callenborn, who's a, you know, he's a UAS uh, expert. And we talked about how could you use UASs in a nuclear enterprise, either to defend or to attack nuclear weapons. And so I just wonder, as we think about modernization, are we really thinking about the threat and then working from the threat or are we, you know, we building what we've always built because it's what we feel comfortable with. It's what the, you know, what the defense contractors know how to build it. You know, what, where are we in terms of thinking broadly about what is sort of the right modernization effort? Yeah. Well, um, a, I think, what we have to do is continually reassess what our needs are. And we often uh, attribute that occurring in a nuclear posture view, which uh, has general, has occurred in, with each new administration. But we may need to start thinking about doing nuclear posture reviews even within an administration, <clears throat> given changes and developments, for example, how rapidly North Korea is developing its capability in China and so forth. So that would be one approach I think that would be different than traditional ways of <clears throat> nuclear posture reviews occurring every four or even sometimes eight years. Maybe we need to do them every two if conditions uh, enable. Second, uh, much of the modernization program of record, as you well know, was envisioned a decade ago sure, or yeah. longer. And so that was a different time. And, because, and which gets to my second frustration with our nation. You know, we, we built the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Force from basically back of the napkin design to hundreds of missiles in the ground across northern and central United States in just a handful of years. And now it takes us 15 years or more to deliver the first unit of a, either a delivery platform or a nuclear weapon, roughly. And then 
it takes another 10 years or more to deliver the last unit. So that last unit is delivered 25 years or more after it was designed. And just think of the technology we had 25 years ago. Um, I mean, we didn't have iPhones and all this kinds of stuff. And so we do need to look at uh, how fast we go and improving our acquisition programs and many other people, including the former vice chairman, General Hyten, was a very big believer in that as well. And then the third is, uh, I think, exactly to what you noted and um, continuing to look at what it takes to deter and achieve objectives in a changing uh, global security environment and, and evaluating where, we, where adversaries may perceive gaps in our capabilities and then infer advantage and what we might need to do to close those gaps. Uh, we have generally life extended our nuclear weapons, not developed new nuclear weapons. And uh, we may want to look at that. Those are policy decisions, which are pretty inexpensive to change if the conditions desire. And so uh, I'm convinced that given this continued nuclear coercion, uh, that the, the department and the nation are going to have to look very hard at this again in the coming years and come to some very difficult decisions about what it takes to deter because there's no clear answer. We had great uh, theorists in the 60s and 70s, very popular names, who looked at the global security environment and came up with different approaches to absolutely deterrence. Yeah. And so there may not be a single answer, but what we'll have to do is... Uh, if we're willing, if if we want to accept the same level of risk from a nuclear armed adversary that we traditionally have and not accept even greater risk, we're going to have to devote more focus on this because our nuclear modernization programs, which has to and does include our nuclear command control and communications, as you know, having a system that's modern but no way to command and control it or communicate with it is worthless. So NC3 is also a major part of it that sometimes gets overlooked that will also be a vital one. And as uh, Secretary Mattis said, this nation can afford to secure itself. He, he had a much more eloquent way of saying that, but can afford security. And so we're going to have to look at the priorities and, uh, and uh, put our money where the priorities are. Yeah, you, you make a great point. And I sort of wonder, one of the big questions I've been thinking through, and we've had a few guests to, on the show to talk, Nicholas Shalon came on and talked about you know, how do we build secure cyber systems for NC3? And and I wonder, and, you know, Chad has a, a challenging task at the neck. Um, and I, I wonder if, as we think about it, and the Russians and the Chinese build their new capabilities, their hypersonic, their space-based weapons. I read an article uh, this morning that the Chinese and Russians have both been maneuvering satellites to follow, you know, other satellites and which is something that we're sort of having to sit back and go, man, how do, what do we do with this? And what capabilities do we need to make sure that this doesn't become kinetic or adversarial? And so it seems to me that in any attack on the United States, the first thing the Russians and Chinese are going to do is try to make us blind and deaf. And that ways, you know, the integrated tactical warning and attack assessment capabilities are down. 
We won't be able to communicate to command and control. We'll face, you know, space-based assets. There will be cyber attacks. There will be these things that make us unable to function as we, you know, we expect and plan to operate in, in that kind of a situation. As you look at it, do you see us on the proper path to being able to address all of those sort of possible cyberspace, uh, other kinds of hypersonics to where we can, we still have a secure second strike. We never lose the ability to communicate between the president and forces in the field. Do, are, are we on the, the right path? I think we are on the right path, on a good path. I don't know if it's the right path. And I say that because as you appreciate, uh, our nuclear weapon modernization and nuclear delivery platform recapitalization programs are going to are just starting to deliver with the B-6112, and those really occur over the next 30 years. And so time will tell if we're on the right path, but we've had to make decisions about what capabilities and posture and quantities of things that we'll have. But that's why I get back to a more frequent reassessment may be necessary. But to your point, um, I think it was the chairman, Chairman Milley, that said when China demonstrated its fractional orbital bombardment system, that that was a Sputnik-like moment. When the Sputnik satellite was orbiting the Earth, the United States population took notice. I don't believe the United States population took notice of the fractional orbital bombardment system, which China put up, which if, if armed with a nuclear weapon, and if you can do one near orbit, then you can certainly do two or four or 10 or have it loiter and be a coercive weapon. And so, uh, and of course, attack from very different profiles than uh, traditional intercontinental ballistic missiles and so forth. And so I would agree that it's a Sputnik-like moment. The question is, are we going to respond in the way that, this, that, that those capabilities demand? Those are very significant capabilities that uh, if fielded in numbers would be a significant challenge for us. We certainly have the, the innovation, the industrialization, and uh, the capabilities to address this. We just need to I think we need to recognize that it's a priority across our departments of government, Congress and the Department of Defense um, and other executive branch organizations and start focusing resources. And if we unleash our national laboratories and our technical talent, heck, look what SpaceX and everybody else is doing with rockets landing. I think we can get there. Yeah, absolutely. We just got to get our heads out of our uh, phones uh, and quit watching TikTok videos of stupid stuff and, and get Americans to want to be scientists instead of social influencers. And then, then I think we're certainly in a, in a good position. Yeah. If we can, I think if we can get our population to understand that our network of freedoms, whether that's freedom of navigation or any other thing, freedom of information and technology exchanges and everything else is what is allowing them to have such a comfortable lifestyle that maybe they'd be more interested in paying attention to these kinds of issues. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Brigadier General John Widener, thanks for coming on Nuclecast. Thank you, sir. I very much appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks to you, the listeners. Uh, for joining us on this show and stay tuned for my afterthoughts.
Hmm, so afterthoughts. Well, uh, I, I already liked John Widener, so that was certainly an easy, uh, an easy uh, interview. Uh, it's always, you know, good to hear that our senior leaders are, you know, thinking deeply about these issues and considering, you know, where we need to go and what direction and, you know, the idea that we need to be constantly reevaluating because one, you know, one of my big concerns is that we don't really have truly open discussions about nuclear because it has so much baggage and so much, so many strongly held beliefs that we sort of don't fully evaluate it. And so it was good to hear uh, John say, you know, maybe we do need to reevaluate this more frequently because we are in a dynamic and changing world. So it was a good discussion, good interview, enjoyed it greatly. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.